Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit Is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit Is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store. We are back in effect at the Detroit Is Different podcast studios, and I am here with another Detroiter, Adding different things to the mix, somebody that I've known for a long time, friend and mom of one of my favorite little homies who's now like grown as ever. So that makes me like an old person. But uh, Tiffany Tilly, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? Good, good, good. So this cold December day. It's not that cold. It's not that cold. <laughs> we are in Detroit. It gets colder. It you does. You know what I'm saying? It's, 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 this is a December day. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We're going to speak it. We're going to speak it into existence. But um, we're going to start this whole thing off with um, the usual start of Detroit's different interviews. Your family. How did your family come and make their way to the city of Detroit? Who was uh, on your mom's side? Do you know who the first family member that made it to Detroit? Both of my um, mother's parents lived in other places. My grandmother came from Mobile, Alabama. Okay. My grandfather came from the Carolinas. Hmm. Interesting story. And what uh, what brought him to the D? Um, my grandmother was coming looking for a better life. Her siblings had come up, and they were working for the factories. And, and they sent for Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. So she came up. She, some of her siblings stayed behind in Alabama, but um, yeah, she came up and uh, she was older when she had my mother. She was uh, forty-two, but I think she came up maybe in her early twenties or something. Okay, okay. And <coughs> your grandfather, um, you said the Carolinas. What what did he come up for? So, <coughs> um. My grandfather's father was moving some moonshine. Ain't that something. And uh, (laughs) he was moving moonshine for a Caucasian man that he worked for. It was his moonshine. Mm. And then a couple of Caucasian gentlemen tried to rob him. Mm. And he said, this is my boss, uh, moonshine. You know, legend has it. <laughs> legend. This <laughs> uh, <laughs> is my, my boss, Moonshine. I can't let y'all get this Moonshine. And I guess the, it became physical, and he killed them. Wow. And he ran up to uh, to Detroit. And it's um, as, as horrific and as scary as that story seems, mm-hmm. that story is a story that kind of – Range true in a lot of families. Like a lot of people fled the South to the North for safety. Yeah. Um, from racism, situations like yeah. that. Yeah. From yeah. racism situations where you know it led into violence or death or the possible risk of death or lynching or something like that. So yep. it was like middle of the night, clothes on your back, gone. Yep. Mm. And thank God, you know, he made it. He sent for my grandfather. Um, my mother was my grandfather's only child. I am my mother's only child. Wow. So, yeah, if he if he would not have made it, I would not have been here. So um, that that alone, 
what neighborhoods uh, do you, did they grow up in in the city when they got here? So uh, my grandmother purchased a house on Cherry Lime, Pembroke, and Chippewa. Mm. Um, it's definitely the hood now, but, you know, when my grandmother purchased that home in the 40s, and even when my mother grew up and I grew up, it was uh, a different time. Um, everybody was family. So um, it, for a time, I even stayed there with my children. And it's a few neighbors left still holding it down on that particular block. But um, everybody's families just grew up together. Um, you know, I grew up with people that my mother had grown up with. The seniors that I used to go play with and spend time with, um, we were talking when I was a teenager maybe, and she said, you know, I used to go spend time with those same seniors and hang out with them. So um, you were outside playing. It was a, a, a situation where you knew that you were safe. I knew my kids were safe because for generations we all held that block down. Okay, and that neighborhood is definitely one of the, I would say, more like recognizable West Side neighborhoods when people think, like, when I think Seven Mile, I don't know why I always think West Seven Mile, but that may be the West Sider in me. But I think of, like, those blocks, those streets, that that area. Um, I think of that. Johnson Recreation Center. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of controversy going on right now with uh, – I know the city um, is giving it to U of D Jesuit. Mm. But, um, yeah, those were some great times. The Johnson Recreation Center really um, was central for that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, every year they had a, a big picnic that we would go to. And, again, those generations would come together, listen to music, dance, play, you know, have fun, mm -hmm. eat. Um and the center was a safe place to go swim and, and um, learn different lessons like ceramics and different things that they had um, for the youth. We need to get back to more of that. And then my mom, um, she bought a house on Westmoreland and Six Mile, so grew up in that neighborhood. And we also owned a home on Virgil, um, Jeffries and Telegraph. Mm -hmm. Okay. And a whole different type of culture in that neighborhood, but let's talk a little bit about mm -hmm. your dad's family. How did they make their way to the city? So my grandmother was born in Florida. Mm -hmm. um, my grandfather was from Arkansas, from Hope, Arkansas. Mm. Um, my family is actually really well known there. I haven't been yet. Mm -hmm. um, but they're educators down there. <coughs> My, um, I'm the great-great-niece of Henry Clay Yerger, who um, he started the first Negro school there. <laughs> and he was born into slavery. Slavery was abolished when he was five years old. <laughs> but he started a school, and the school grew um, so big that today there's a high school there named in his honor, a middle school. They started building a, a small museum. Um, the state of Arkansas actually used his curriculum as a model for the state. Uh, and Bill Clinton included my family in his memoirs. Wow. 
Now, what's unique about that is usually <coughs> families from Florida and Arkansas kind of usually make their way all the way up, I don't know why, to, to Chicago. They usually don't come come Detroit pathway. Well, and then they didn't do that first. My grandfather and my grandmother met in California. Ain't that something? So they and went out west. They went out west. Okay. And then my somehow my grandmother's mother um, came to Detroit, and she was here sick. Hmm. And so my grandmother had um, married another man. Mm-hmm moved out here to Michigan. Um, my father was ill. He had tuberculosis, and he was in a sanatorium. And so she left him behind with his father and in the hospital and came out to uh, Detroit and helped take care of her mother. Hmm. So that's yeah. what kind of led her this way. Okay, because, yep. yeah, that's the other place. They Well, if they come, if they... If they migrated up to the Midwest, it usually would be Chicago. Like, it's a lot of people from Georgia, Alabama, uh, those routes here in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Usually Arkansas, Florida. It's almost like the further west you go, that's yeah. usually Chicago or further west. You know, Texas is a lot of people from California out there. But um, this this history kind of fr- gives a framework for your parents and then, like, the scope of of how things kind of came together. What was it like uh, for you as far as growing up? What neighborhood would you say you lived in most as a child? Well, my mother was so close to her parents. We spent a lot of time um, at my grandmother's. Mm -hmm. So I I, I was definitely back and forth a lot. And then my grandmother, she fell ill, and Mm -hmm. we uh, moved in with my grandmother for a time to help take care of her. Mm Um, until she passed, and we stayed at the house a little while longer. My mother had rented out her house on Westmoreland, and she um, bought a house on Virgil. So you kind of identify with maybe your grandmother's neighborhood a whole lot more as your childhood neighborhood? No, I, I identify with all of them. I still have childhood friends that I keep in touch with from all of all, all three of those neighborhoods. Okay. Because <coughs> even just, like, the characteristics of, like, I, I, I kind of label neighborhoods by the high school in the area, mm-hmm. which now with so many high schools not open anymore. So, like, Virgil, 90, and Jeffries, that would be, like. Redford High School. Exactly. So, Redford versus the Chippewa, which is more like a, a Mumford neighborhood. That's, like, a whole different, like, uh, as close but it, it's a different it's a different feel a different yeah a different type of uh a different type of neighborhood uh especially like when you think about that that refer neighborhood around um around like i would say kind of like the late 70s to to like maybe the early 90s it was a lot of like younger families moving in over there um and it it was very diverse. Um, it was a very diverse neighborhood. So, um, you know, like people even tell me, I, I don't remember it because I don't think we could have went. I think I was alive, but I don't think we could have went. Like uh, where it was an amusement park over there. It was not an amusement park, but it was every year they had the festival at St. Gemma, which I attended that mm. school as well. Mm. Yeah. 
And um, and then Bishop Borges had a festival every year, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it was in walking <coughs> distance. So, like, um, so the 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 what was it like uh, what high school did you choose uh, did you go end up going over to Redford what high school did you go to so I had grown up in private school mm-hmm. and you know all of my friends went to public school mm-hmm. and they took the bus to school uh-huh. <laughs> and they made it sound so exciting <laughs> Redford was rough and it was something different mm-hmm. than you know anything I had really experienced and I said you know I want to go to um, public high school and my mother wanted me to uh, go to Cranbrook mm-hmm. and I said I don't I don't want to go to Cranbrook mm-hmm. and then she said well at least go to Bishop Borges mm-hmm. and I remember we toured and I said I want to go to school with my friends I want to experience you know going to a public school and riding the bus and so um, I started out at Redford, and I uh, I was 13 years old, hmm. and um, I got right in. <laughs> you know, it, it was the into the culture. culture. It was it was totally different um, from anything that I had experienced. Of course, the private schools that I had attended were small, and um, there were over 2,000 kids there. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I, I noticed right away was the difference in the curriculum. Um, and and I actually felt bad um, for the kids because I knew that the, the level of education was totally different um, mm-hmm. than what they should have been getting. So did you like Redford? I loved Redford. I got kicked out of Redford, though. <laughs> Okay, so... I wasn't doing really well. I mean, and I I wasn't necessarily getting into things like some kids, like they would offer me, you know, marijuana, and I'd be like, no, thank you. So, you know, really wasn't doing those things. Um, I went to, I tried a skip party or two, and I was like, this is not my thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um... You just wanted, but I did. I, I did get into. Do, you just weren't doing the work. I was so bored, mm-hmm. so I, I was not. Um, when I was ten years old, my meet scores were um, in reading was that of a graduating senior. So I, I was totally bored at Redford. Um, got into a fight, got kicked out, and then um, went over to Henry Ford. Okay, and that's the other school around that neighborhood as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and we also transitioned back to Westmoreland when uh, Westmoreland when I was about sixteen. Mm-hmm. So that worked with me, you know, mm-hmm. being closer to Henry Ford. Okay, all right. So from from there in, in your journey, um, from from private school to now getting kicked out of school, uh, I know that was like a complete culture shock, and I can only imagine your mom was like, "This is why we didn't want you going to public school in the first place." <laughs> you know, what was that like from that lens as I'm sure a lot of parents are listening and thinking to themselves, like, why can't I connect with my kids? But sometimes just that social pressure uh, that young people have can be overwhelming because uh, your friends matter so much. What people mm-hmm. think about you matters so much. You know, being a teenager, it's a lot of a, a lot of anxieties 
and insecurities that can be overwhelming that as adults we look back and say, okay, why why did we even think about that? Mm-hmm. But um, what what was that like, um, if you kind of can remember, just that transition? Yeah, because I, I feel so old now. That was a long time ago. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, uh, it was... It was definitely a confusing time. Um, My grandmother ended up passing when I was nine. Mm. And when I was 10, my mother became ill. Um, She had multiple sclerosis. She went blind in one eye. Mm -hmm. Um, She she had a stroke. Um, So she was disabled. And um, my life really changed um, at that point. And so in high school, it just, you know, it was difficult. I began driving um, at 12. As um, as some, as a caregiver for your mother, correct? Mm-hmm. And uh, do you think, as we were talking about just the grieving process, do you think that some of the grieving process for your mother, um, like your mother's illness may have been uh, kind of connected to her losing her mother, possibly? Definitely. I, I, I really think, and she thought that. She thought um, that it was because, you know, she lost her mom. Her mom, she was an amazing um, mother and grandmother. She was strong. She was, you know, I, I almost want to say Medea type, but a lot more class <laughs> with it. But she, but she was a caregiver. So um, she spoiled us rotten. And um, my mother, I think, felt like, who's going to take care of me now? And she just, she worked mm-hmm. and, and things like that. But she just, you know, her mom just, she was so dependent on her mother and her parents, period. And uh, this kind of goes into something uh, something that we, we spoke about, as you lost your mother and I lost my mother. But mm-hmm. uh, we can share this on Detroit is Different. Um, just the grieving process for anyone, but especially in the black community, because we can already be so, we can already be coming from a position of, of, of pain or hurt or, or struggle, um, in seeing the world and like through our interpretation, um, how, how do you think this is more like a macro question? the 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 grieving process in our community could be more i guess um more uh, more positive helpful uh how, how can we empathize with one another a whole lot more in it uh, recognizing that there are some challenges that do exist in in our community when it comes to this? I think we have to start looking inside. I think some people are extremely um, judgmental. They can be uh, negative, which will make it hard for a person to open up to them Mm -hmm. and let them know what they're really going through. And then that makes, you know, a person feel alone. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, not to say that that's necessarily what my mother was going through, but just in a general sense in our community, mm-hmm. um, we we have to work on ourselves and be better people so that we can help one another. 
and and be in that mind frame of how can I um, really be a support to somebody else and how can I empathize and even though I'm not going through this and I can't imagine it I know that this person is in a lot of pain and and I could imagine that a situation like that would cause a lot of pain so you know let me check on that person a lot of times when people um, experience death there's people around you know people come bring food Um, when my mother died people weren't bringing me food but my family wanted me to come stay with them different family members wanted me to come stay with them Um, but after the funeral a lot of times people don't have people checking on them you know you have a lot of people that are calling you and bombarding you, um, but it gets so quiet afterwards. So I think we still need to be mindful that even though the funeral is over with and they've gotten past that part, they still need people to talk to, people to lean on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I think I, I can agree. And then sometimes I can be in my own head so much because when a person does lose someone, it's hard to it's like hard even to know a response. Know a response. Just sometimes mm-hmm. just being a sound and being, let mm-hmm. alone all of the phone numbers I have in my in my contacts of people that have passed on. Like every year, it just gets larger and larger, and it's so. You know, like you ever have like that moment? You know, like those. Um, like it, it it gives like a moment for pause almost. You know. Yeah. Because, like, you know, mom is going to be in my phone and your phone for forever. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Let alone, yep. like, you know, those last text messages, those last phone calls. Yeah. You know, that's going to stand there. But so yep. many other people as well where it's like, damn, you know? Yeah. So I, I like what you were saying. Just, you know, check in and then touch base. Um, if I... I I um I learned because it, it used to be hard, difficult for me. I didn't know what to do when I was younger for people. Um, so now if somebody's sick and they're close to me, if somebody you know with their family or friend, um, if if there's a death, I will at least text people because sometimes you don't know if it's an inconvenient time to call or not. Um, so I will at least text them, send them, you know, a heart, you know, the, um, the hands, the praying hands, let them know that they're in my thoughts and in my prayers, ask them if if there's anything that they need, anything that I can do for them. Um, sometimes, you know, taking somebody out to lunch, just, um, encouraging them. So I, I, I agree. And then I would say also give people space to not necessarily respond in the way you think they're going to respond. Because mm-hmm. sometimes the mind is not as like, since my mom's passed and I definitely know, I've been more, um, I may not respond in the way that most people think I will respond. And it's not necessarily being aloof or uh, disrespectful. It's just... I don't know. It's, it's like, okay, let me let me walk away. I'm not about to get a stroke over something that I'm not as interconnected with. Um, mm-hmm. Which kind of brings us back to you and your journey because as you stepped up more in a role of caregiving, uh, as your mother needed more um, support, 
Of course. Um, brothers and sisters, or was it just you? I was my mom's only child. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> she she did um, have different relationships and uh, marriages and a fiance. So there were different people um, in the house. You know, sometimes their children mm-hmm. would come visit or come for the summer or if their family members, but um, it was off and on. So it would be people in the house, and then it would be empty. And then it would be people in the house, and it would be empty. So, um, and just depending on the guy that was there, um, depending on, you know, his style or whatever, I may have had to do more cleaning and cooking and different things depending on who was in the household. And this was like a role that you kind of took on at like 11, like 10, 11, 12? Yeah, at when my grandmother was living, we had a uh, full-time housekeeper, mm-hmm. nine to five type of, you know, mm-hmm. housekeeper um, that helped out, did everything while my mother and my grandfather were at, at work. Um after my grandmother passed and my mom got sick, of course, I became <laughs> like the housekeeper. Um You're like Florence on uh the Jefferson. <laughs> or Cinderella. My friends used to call Florence. me Cinderella. But um say Florence. It was a difficult transition mm-hmm. going from being spoiled rotten to mm-hmm. you know, now having to maintain a household as a kid. Yeah. So, uh, but learning to cook and all of that stuff, did you pick up all those recipes from your grandmother? Did you have to learn on the fly? Did your mom show you? Like, what, how did you get that? Well, my grandmother died when I was nine. Um, I definitely remember her cooking and miss her cooking. She didn't teach me how to. My mother did teach me how to cook. And, you know, my mother had cookbooks. And um, she would sit at the table and instruct me on what I was doing. Um, <coughs> especially with larger meals, holiday meals or different things, you know. And um, I would experiment. Mm-hmm. I, I um, ended up learning to love cooking. And, and by my family coming from the Gulf Coast in um, Mobile, Alabama, you know, food is big for us. So, um, yeah, I began experimenting. Okay. So, uh, as you're thrusted into like now this, uh, as a child, but I feel like I'm in a therapy session. You were grown as ever, too. (laughs) Yeah, it can be like that. Somebody said that before with one of these, but that that's a that's a unique position, you know, to be in as a kid. So, you were like pseudo daughter, pseudo mother, uh. And friend, you know, throughout this whole thing and still taking on yeah. school and everything. And and then, too, I, I was rebellious um, because I was angry and I didn't understand why as a child I was angry. But I, I went through a lot of transitions, didn't really have anybody to talk mm-hmm. to, um, didn't know how to communicate what I was feeling and um, didn't have people I could really trust to, to a lot of people I could trust to share those burdens with whether it be the um 
responsibility or or the sharing of the emotions and and what you're opening up about i think a lot of a lot of young people feel today too and just grown people too but especially like a young person because sometimes it may even be when you're that age you don't even necessarily know how to communicate some of the things you're going through as well so it's like Mm -hmm. man and i was an introvert so it was yeah i did not have those skills at that that time it's something and i feel it but i don't even know how to say it yep but i know i feel it um so as this goes on you graduate what what's after high school after high school was babies and <laughs> marriage um i married my high school sweetheart that i had met at retford um we had two children mm-hmm. both of them very dynamic Who and creative tony and Talay. um tony and Talay. uh i'm definitely closer to Talay as she is like everything i'm doing with content i think she's going to do um if not more like times a thousand you know um so definitely you've added to the the culture of our people with your children and and I, I've taught them to be independent. Um, I did not want, God forbid, something to happen to me and them have to go through the type of transition that I, I went mm-hmm. through. So um, I always stayed close, but I let them explore um, and learn. And um, they, have, they have a great independence about themselves. They're both young adults. My son bought his first uh, first investment property at 22, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a two-family flat here in Detroit, and he's still fixing it up, and uh, he's making plans on his next property. He's working full-time, so, you know, he's slowly putting money in, and, and um, he has people helping him. Um, his his Masonic brothers mm-hmm. <laughs> are helping him. His uncle is helping him. Um, neighbors have pitched in. Mama has come over with money or, you know, uh, he said one time, I need a lamp. <laughs> so that's I, what you need. And I need it now. That's, that's, <laughs> so that's I had to take him a lamp. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's difficult. We bump heads oh, a yeah. lot because he is so independent and you know in thought and uh he wants to do everything his way mm-hmm. um which experience sometimes is a good teacher but also you have you have those elders that you can lean on that have had those experiences that you can you know listen to so it's not so rough but um you know he he's very strong-willed and then my daughter she um she moved down to Florida with her, her father and her grandmother, and she's going to school full-time, and she's working full-time, and she's finding herself and making her way, and um, miss her so much. She was sending me pictures this morning and last night that she was finding that my mother-in-law still mm-hmm. had <laughs> um, of me and of me and them and of my grandfather and my mom. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, you must be missing me. She said, I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So um, having children, uh, as I think that obviously that's the most, that's the most epic uh, 
form of creativity you have on, in life. What was that transition to motherhood like for you? You know, I was so young. It seems like when I, I did it, um, I was 18. Um, I knew absolutely nothing. I had not really even babysat before, I think, by then. I had um, may- maybe once or twice or something, not not any real experience in babysitting or changing diapers or anything like that. I had never even changed a boy's diaper before. Um, and my mother really wasn't of assistance, you know. So... I remember I had, um, and I'm a pack rat. My my grandparents are older grandparents. They're from the Depression era. So I learned to be a pack rat. And I actually found this card cleaning out the basement the other day um, to Sinai Hospital, um, Sinai Grace. and I, No, Sinai. I had my son in Sinai and my, my daughter in Sinai Grace. Um, and I would call the nurse to ask questions you know, of what I should do. Um, during my pregnancy, I had several books, and I, I was reading the books to teach myself, you know, about my pregnancy, um, about the different stages of pregnancy, about things that I, I would experience, um, about things to help me, you know, as far as a mom after I had the baby. And I also nursed full time. I did not pump. So that was, you know, that was all of that at a young age and without really any guidance or much guidance. Okay. And just that connection, uh, do you think that that was something that just inspired you? Because we've talked about family so much, you know, business-wise and your community efforts – are you have a lot of experience and yeah. you've done a lot of things and accomplished things worldwide. So do you think that um, just seeing that come to life, it was, was a catalyst to uh, venture into more? You know, at one point, I just remember thinking I was hurting so much from different things that were going on in my life and that I had no idea of how to navigate um, and things that I felt like were out of my control. Um, I, I just really thought, start thinking about other people that are in pain and what they're going through, and I just wanted to hug the world. Okay, so let's talk about the hugging the world and, and community work, which is kind of politics, because that's how we connected. That's how we met. So what were some of your community efforts? What was the first thing you did? How did you go about it? Why did you go about it? I started out as an activist. Um, It was something that was always in me, politics, activism. Even as a small child, I was walking up and down the street with a makeshift sign saying, vote vote for Dukakis, (laughs) yelling at the cars that went by. and I was always interested in activism, never had a, an avenue. I was interested in, you know, the, the movement of the civil rights era, the NAACP, all of these great organizations, MLK, Malcolm X. But I felt like, you know, 
Where mm-hmm. are they? All of that is gone. You know, it was a different era and different time. I didn't realize that we still had great organizations mm-hmm. around. So when I found out, I started getting involved in different um, organizations and nonprofits. And um, I was an AmeriCorps VISTA volunteer. Okay. Was that like one of the first ones that you were in, engaged in? I think how I even got to that point, my cousin was murdered um, two blocks from my home. And um, he had, he was at the corner store on Cherry Lawn. And, um, excuse me, Cherry Lawn and 8 Mile. And um, he, uh, the, the store clerk had got into an argument with somebody in the store. And somehow... My cousin and his friend, they were about to exit the store. The the store clerk came from behind the counter, and the guy started beating him up really bad. Well, as you can imagine, it's a neighborhood store, so you know the clerk. (laughs) You know, you've been knowing him for years. Um, My cousin actually didn't want to get involved. He was like, okay, you know, he didn't want anything to do with it. His friend said, no, you know, we got to help him. My cousin said, that's not our business. We need to leave. His friend um, tried to help, and then he started getting mm. beat up. So then my cousin, now his his personal now friend, help. now he had, now he had mm. to help. And so he, uh, he roughed the guy up, and then the guy was upset. Um, he, the guy hadn't too long been out of jail for murder. Um, I don't even know if it was a whole year that he had been out. And, um, my cousin thought it was over, you know, it was a fight. It wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, weapons or anything. And so he went on about his, his life. He, uh, was driving back to his grandmother's house on Rose Lawn a couple of days later from wherever he was at. He had a girlfriend who had, he had, you know, it was kind of the high school sweetheart type of thing. They had been together for a minute, and she was pregnant. And he was on his way to uh, go watch the game with his dad and feed his grandmother. And... The guy had found out who he was and boxed him in a vehicle in front of him, a vehicle behind mm. him, and they they murdered, murdered him. Mm. Uh, I think it was like seven seven uh, yeah, shots. Very sad and unfortunate. Um, so, but that that started my path for activism. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to do something. Um, so at the Johnson Recreation Center, I think on the maybe fir- one year anniversary, I did a um, stop the so violence right rally in your neighborhood, in that neighborhood too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that it was so important there too because it was not just my cousin, and it was called the Manny Project after mm-hmm. my my cousin, and I, I turned Manny into an acronym, um, mending a neighborhood, um, needing impact mm-hmm. every day. And so 
that particular neighborhood, it it was constant. Mm-hmm. The murders, the sh- gunshots. I remember my mom had moved to Tennessee, her and her husband, and um, my kids, we went to visit, and my son was eight, and he said, I don't want to go back. I don't want to hear. I, I haven't heard any gunshots since I've been here. He was eight years old. Um, so, yeah, I started with the Stop the Violence rallies. And that, I mean, I think I did it in two weeks. And people were like, there's no way you're going to do this. It was two or three weeks. Um, I, I said, we're going to do this. I raised money, did a program book. And so ads to raise money just to get the stage Mm -hmm. from the city. I was so hurt that the city wouldn't let us borrow Mm -hmm. the stage. I'm like, we're trying to do something Mm -hmm. in the community for the community, and we can't get the stage. No, it's Mm -hmm. $400. (laughs) So I had to raise the money for it. Um, And then there were vendors, and I gave out free vending tables. Um, I wasn't trying to make any money. And at that point, I didn't even know how to throw a, a real birthday Hilarious. party. <laughs> I just knew that something. I wanted to do yeah. something for the community. So um, Donnell White from the NAACP came to be on the panel. Um, and then I, did you, did James you know Tate. that like, you just reached out to them or met them? Uh, how did you make these connections? I think along my path, I worked for the election commission and I was – starting to do a little things I had just met different people and I think I had met Hester Wheeler and he's who was the executive director at the time I think he sent executive Donnell. director I think that's how I met Donnell. NAACP, which later yeah. Donnell White became the executive director of yep. the NAACP Detroit NAACP yep 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 okay and James Tate, this um, is before he's city council member. This was before city council. I actually met James Tate. I was the communications director of the central business district downtown. He was the communications director for mm-hmm. the city at the time when we met. And then he became the um, deputy chief, uh, a deputy mm-hmm. chief of police. Um, Edward Foxworth was the moderator. Glenn Plummer, Pastor Glenn Plummer was on the panel I can't remember who else was on the panel that first year, but we had several mm-hmm. people on the panel. Um, different uh, organizations that had the vending tables, and one of those organizations I ended up becoming an AmeriCorps Vista volunteer mm-hmm. at. Um, and it grew every year. I did it for four years in a row. Um by by the time the fourth year was there, the uh, African American Museum had given us given it to us for free. Um, the second year we did it at the park down in um, mm-hmm. Cass Corridor, but the weather w- was bad, so we decided the next year to move it to the museum. So the third year we paid for the museum. The fourth year they loved it so much they gave it to us for That's free. A blessing. Um, it's it's a huge blessing. We had 15 community partners. Um, Bella Marshall was one of the sponsors. Um, Henry Ford had become a community partner. The ARC Nonviolence Program, Pioneers for Peace, um, BAG, Brothers Against Gun Violence, 
all kind of great organizations and, and people just came together, the AKAs and the ID lets, the young AKAs and it it was so many people. Uh, Minister Malik Shabazz, the the uh, Nation of Islam. I tried to bring as many people and diverse people. You know, a lot of times when you go to things like that, you see the same type of mindset, the same type of people. For me, how can we stop the violence if we're not all coming together from different mm -hmm. sects? You know, from grassroots to Christians to Muslims to just everybody coming together um, as leaders and showing the young people that hey you can, even though you're different you can come together and work together. So this and 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 people don't know this. There was a huge fight between Pastor Glenn Plummer, who was my pastor, and the Nation of hmm. Islam at the time. Um, he was getting death threats because he was very vocally attacking mm -hmm. them. I, I use the word attack verbally. Um, you know, he didn't agree with the nation or, or, you know, he was just vocal about his thoughts or feelings and it was very mm -hmm. public. I ended up, um, I, I think it was actually after the last rally getting the two mm -hmm. together and getting it all to yeah. stop. They actually had a face-to-face. -face. It was just um, my pastor, a representative from the nation, myself, and they shook hands, and they walked away more like brothers that's, than enemies. That's good. That's, that's powerful. Um, I mean, that right mm -hmm. there um, caused... Uh, you know, engaged in less uh, attacks or violence. And it, mm -hmm. you also wielded so much as uh, we connected through that, <coughs> definitely. Um, I think about that. I think about the chance that I got to, you know, I introduced you to Mama P or Proust's mother. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, she was a part um, of it too. Yeah. And that's what I always think of. Uh, rest in peace, Mama P. Rest in peace, Proust. Yeah. But, um, yeah. From there, you wielded uh, relationships with a lot of people throughout the state, and then people kind of saw it, your skills in politics and networking and connecting people together. Um, from there, where do you go? What's what's your inspiration? What what was your path? Because that was community work, but then you know that spirit of entrepreneurship, that spirit of um, you know, what do I do with some of these skill sets? And then you, you build yeah. a confidence base when you see something like that can come to life, when that idea becomes reality. It, it went from 70, about 75 people the first year to over 400 mm -hmm. people um, the last year that we did it in attendance. Um, you know, I just, I think, you take one step, and, and then God guides you mm -hmm. to another step. Um, and then doors just kept opening. Um, and I just, I didn't give up. You know, you you get so many different obstacles and uh, things that come up in your way. But I just kept pushing. 
um, because it wasn't for myself anyway. It was it was mm-hmm. about the greater good and helping people. So, um, you know, we were in a state when I was uh, the uh, a Vista volunteer. I was at the Detroit Parent Network, and at that time, we were um, about to lose affirmative action. And so I stepped up and I was organizing and I was working with different people, including the NAACP and um, One Michigan. And uh, I was on the forefront organizing parents, uh, trying to save it, trying to save it. Uh, My kids were in the fight trying to save it. They were small. Um, my son, I think he was around eight or nine mm-hmm. that, at that time. And he was just, you know, he watched the news. He, he would watch the news every day and he saw the news before I did. And, and he said, Ma, we lost affirmative action. And he was just so disappointed. Um, cause we all, you know, both of them, we all fought so hard, but, um, I just kept joining different fights. I went down to Gina, Louisiana, organized parents, um, got them on the NAACP buses, and we went down there, and when they hung the nooses, um, I just kept um, different issues, just raised the wage campaign. I was a big part of that. I was a a field director for that. And... um, During the affirmative action piece, I got tapped by now state rep Isaac Robinson to join the Democratic Party. And I said, I'm Mm -hmm. an independent. I don't want to join the party. And he said, well, you know, we're doing a lot of the things that you're doing. And I think Mm -hmm. you would be a good fit. And, you know, just come check us out. So I went to a Young Dems event. It was crazy. (laughs) It was extremely crazy. It Mm -hmm. was their convention, and, you know, people were vying Mm -hmm. for their place, um, the youth across the state, young adults. And um, he said, you got to sign this paperwork. I said, that's membership paperwork. He said, that's just to sign in. I was like, no. And he was like, no, it's to sign in. They capped you. (laughs) He tricked me. And I said, said, well, I'm not paying. He said, you don't have to pay. Just, Just sign it. And next thing I knew, because I'm thinking, well, I didn't pay for it, so I'm thinking I'm not a member. Well, you don't have to pay (laughs) to be a member of the Democratic Party. You can get a free membership. So um, after that, I I just stuck with it, and I didn't turn back. I became the treasurer of the Young Dems of Michigan. I became the... um, and I began to go to the YDA, the Young Dems of America's conventions um, nationally. I became the Great Lakes Regional Director for the Jewish Caucus. And then after I aged out, um, I became the corresponding secretary for the 14th Congressional District. So as this, as this keeps going on right now, what, what are you working on today? And we, we're running out of time, but what are you working on today as you've touched so many different organizations and I see the connection of um, since being a child you've you've taken on different skill sets and knowing how to organize uh, and knowing how to capitalize on opportunity and then 
playing a role in in those opportunities presented. So what, what are you working on now? So um, I'm still the corresponding secretary of the 14th. I also ended up becoming the corresponding secretary of Southfield Lathrop Village Dems, um, which I stepped down from. I was also on the executive board for Oakland County, the Oakland County Democratic Party. I live in Southfield. I stepped down from that uh, because I ended up running mm -hmm. for office for State Board of Education. Um, it's a statewide seat. I, uh, I, I received almost 1.8 million votes in this last election cycle. And so I had to free up some space. But And then I also um, became the NASB rep, the national representative for the state board. NASB. And What's so the National Association School mm -hmm. Boards of yes. Educators. And then in addition to that, um, I run a nonprofit organization. It's called the Southfield Community Anti-Drug Coalition. And we work with middle school, high school, and young adults up mm -hmm. to age 21. Um, I'm the first director of this coalition. There are now 20 coalitions. We were the 19th in Oakland County. And um, some of them have been ar around a long time, but we're still kind of new. Um, I decided to apply for the DFC grant, which is the grant that the coalitions across the nation get. Um, people, I think, didn't really think I would get the grant because coalitions d that are under five years don't get the grant. There you we go. got the grant. So I, I had done a lot of work to make sure that we had stability and, and structure and a strong, solid foundation. We have a great um, executive board and advisory board. And uh, we were, we've been working with the former um, Boys and Girls Club in Southfield. And we've done um, summer programs the last two summers there. Um, we're working with Southfield, Southfield Public Schools. Now that we have the grant, we can expand to do programming mm -hmm. in the schools. And uh, we just gave a, a Narcan training, which was great. Um, I don't know if you heard about the story with the mother of the young children that were in the house. Yeah, there was I heard about three that. adults in the house. Were, uh, and they overdosed. called the police. Yeah. They overdosed. So the Narcan training helps with that. So, uh, you, of course, you have to be 18 or older to take the training, but you get the uh, the medicine. It's a nasal. Um, it's na it okay. goes in your nose. You s they spray it up, um, even if the person is unconscious. Uh, we did a, a free training, and you get the free Narcan kit. And um, for the and with this, the Narcan this goes spray. into. Uh, a lot of the opioid crisis of America that's labeled and it's um, I think it's more highlighted in rural and like a lot of white America but it's real in the black community too uh, these prescription drugs well it's it, it's it's more so they say it's health issues in the other communities they we've we've had it here you know since 70s, the 70s at least um, issues. 60s I mean some form of depressant. That's why I said at yeah, least 60s, 70s, yeah, 80s. When, you know, hence the whole kind of, you know, you into that jazz, meant, you know, you got heroin. But that's, you know. 
Yeah. One of those things. So what what do you see? What do you see in other projects in the future? Um, what, what what will you be wielding, working on, uh, connecting to? Right now, you know, I am just about to uh, have my first anniversary, actually, as a state board member. I was sworn in January 1st in Lansing. Thank you. And um, I'm just going to be working hard. Uh, equitable equitable funding is a big it's been priority. A when it comes to these school systems. Yes. The structure for funding. Um, it's, it's just horrible. And, you know, Proposal A has been on the books since the 80s. So we need to really pressure the Lansing, legisl the legislators in Lansing to crack open Proposal A and make some amendments. Um, for one, we fund according to the tax base. So it's a, if it's an impoverished area, of course, there are gonna be impoverished schools. If it's a rich area, then the, the schools are going to have a, a, a better a, a quality system there. Um, they're going to get more per pupil funding. So if you get 7,500 in Detroit, you get 13,000 in, in Bloomfield, that's not equitable funding. If you uh, say, hey, well, they're getting 13,000 in Bloomfield, let's give everybody 13,000. That's equal funding, but that's still yeah. not equitable um, funding. Being the one of the positions I hold, and I don't hold many positions, I don't know how I end up in positions too. Shout out to the people that offer me positions, but the president of Detroit Northwestern's High School Alumni Association, and we get into this conversation awesome. often because many of the people from the Alumni mm -hmm. Association are. Uh, from like the sick class of the 60s or the 50s. Uh, shout out John Conyers, Danny mm -hmm. Keith, uh, Willie Horton. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot mm -hmm. of great Northwesterners. Mm -hmm. But uh, Northwestern made a, a, a transitional shift, I would say, in the 80s to become a different type of high school, per se. Now, <coughs> with that being said, uh, it's other challenges that do exist when you talk about that funding, especially in a place like Detroit that has so many charter schools and the resources that charter mm -hmm. schools may or may not offer comparable to public schools, but public schools have mm -hmm. the um, have the e explicit legal obligation to um, to offer schooling for all students, like especially when it comes to mm -hmm. IEE special which needs, like a IEP, mm -hmm. IEE, IEP, IEP, mm -hmm. like a lot of the special education mm -hmm. students, it, almost like. A lot of the neighborhood schools that exist, damn near, you know, the, the rates can be somewhere between 30 to 60 percent, you know, and. And and then, too, that's a part mm -hmm. of equitable funding. So with equitable funding, a student that yeah. has special needs would need a higher percentage, percentage of funding uh, for a, like a, social for workers, resources. And, a student yeah. that's in. A student that's in yeah. Botech would need more, you know, um, money per pupil. Um, a yeah. student that's in poverty because they're so far behind, they need more money for those students. And and it's not just the urban areas; it's I can, the rural areas I can as only, well. Uh, I, I don't I don't know so much in the rural, but I can know how sparingly. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things as uh, as poverty has become more pervasive throughout 
uh, throughout Detroit, mm-hmm. even the transient nature. Like right now, uh, next week, right, w- we're recording on December 17th. Next week, we will be loading up Christmas baskets to give to students if they want. So we, we usually mm-hmm. try to go to 40 families. That's what Northwestern alumni does but it can be very difficult mm-hmm. as the students have very transient households as like you know they're moving it's mm-hmm. more renters it's no longer a a large stock of home owners in the city of Detroit as it once was though this was one of the biggest places of home ownership at one point so it's like so many of these challenges are also interconnected with money race uh, and and crystallized around education because so many pe- people decide where they want to live based on the school in the neighborhood like that that may be mm-hmm. the number one qualifying uh qualifying dynamic to make a house it worth is, it is home value. I, I i have a background yeah. in real estate and, and real estate development um i still do real estate but with I have clients that will call and say, put me in a shack in the Birmingham school district just so my kids can go to a good school. So that is extremely important for parents. And if parents are in a position where they can move out, you know, they they get stable enough or, you know, they change their situation enough, they are ready to move out of the hood that's that's one of the main reasons because and that the schools also at being a northwestern graduate 2001 which different type of school um, i'm one to say depends on the type of kids you got because i love northwestern i love my northwestern experience but i can definitely say mm-hmm. that you need to have the right type of attitude and the right type of mentality to go to a school like that and I would say the same thing even for like a Birmingham Groves because you're dealing with other dynamics mm-hmm. of um, pressure, stress, you are. Uh, racism, mm-hmm. uh, discrimination. Um, so, you know, I think it depends on what type of I think they're working really kid, hard you know. to turn um, the schools around. Dr. Mm-hmm. Vitti is implementing some really good um, programs and new curriculums, you know, since he's been there. But there, there has been historically, you know, even with the emergency, alone, emergency I mean, management that, situation. That situation alone, yeah. and I guess I'm, I'm going on a tangent here, but I really want to drill this point home. Um, I had the opportunity to interview Kwame Kenyatta before he passed, and it was interesting when he spoke on when he was on the Detroit school board. But um, this whole – there's a percentage of money – that's going to pay off a debt that I believe Detroit Public Schools never should have accepted in the first place. And I feel that that was, um, that is illegal. The same thing for the city of Detroit too. So now you have this whole Detroit Public School District that's operating outside of the auspices of Detroit Public Schools because Detroit Public Schools is still paying off a debt that never was a debt that Detroit public school never was a debt that people we elected as Detroiters uh, decided where that money should go. That was that was emergency management that decided that ran up that debt. It's it's so strange. It'd be like um, if you're listening to this, it'd be like somebody taking your credit card for two years 
using mm-hmm. it and then uh, your credit card company coming back saying, all right, look, we're going to give you your credit card back, but you got to pay back. The emergency management was supposed to come and, and change yes. conditions and improve conditions, but they debt created and worse, worse conditions. conditions. And now we have to pay back a uh, debt that I don't think we should honor. And part of that, too, what comes with that is the fact that the millage, millage is going to that's a towards paying huge the debt. problem. The, the state, the state per pupil funding is going to the mm-hmm. new school districts. Um, but the issue with that, um, too, is that with proposal A, you cannot take any um, of that funding that you get from the state that per pupil funding and to that go towards right infrastructure is. And that's what to me, you the do millage the should not be for. paying off a debt that never was actually um, incurred through people that I that that we yeah. as Detroiters voted for. And so you have some schools that Completely. are really deteriorating Completely. that need need um, strong attention, but until that debt is paid off, they're not allowed to take money and, for um, infrastructure. And it's. And they can, and they're not allowed that to raise well. another millage. And that's one of the, um, and the city of Detroit has some of these challenges too that are causing to me red flags with these private. Well, yeah, public, this is the city. Oh, the yeah, these private public itself. relationships where you're almost like, okay, it sounds good that a corporation comes in and says, hey, we just want to help Detroit or we want to help these kids, but it's like, okay, if your intentionality is to make profit. What is your interest in this? Like, it, it sounds good on paper, but you know, like these private-public relationships have um, become more "quote-unquote," I guess, attractive or opportunities or screen to life. You know. Well, you know, with the with the thing with that, and and that's that's hard because you have, you know. My MBA training, my my business training, and I, I've um, studied all over the world. Um, a city will offer the corporation, you know, tax abatements to yeah. to bring them there. It's it can be very competitive. Amazon like we saw, wh- yeah. who was that? Amazon. Yeah, Amazon sure went did. somewhere else, and. Here in Michigan, especially, <laughs> you know, we were the big three. We had the biggest three corporations in the world, and mm-hmm. that was our, our sure. industry, the auto industry. Mm-hmm. We were not diverse. Um, and we're still not diversified I, I enough. Not at but all, we really. Do, it's I mean, no. Not when it comes to big industry. We do have a lot of corporations here in Detroit. We have a lot of corporations in Southfield. But, but I mean, even... Um, to, to, dr- My to, big to list from draw them here and to keep them here. Even yeah. Core Amer- America, when we went through that downturn, yeah. Core America, their headquarters were, were downtown. Yeah. They went to Dallas. And so um, you try to attract corporations and companies but so that there are uh, jobs, so that people can work, so that they can pay their taxes. I think one of the... I mean, and, and there's downsides to it. Don't get me wrong, but that is the thinking behind I, it, the I, methodology I understand of the it. argument, 
but it, it's mm-hmm. I guess we get back on principle and intentionality in it. And, and, I think and they need to be it? doing things so for like the community. Uh, so I, 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 I just want to get this also point. Also, with that, they they say thirty percent. You know, usually mm-hmm. there's different agreements. Thirty percent of the jobs have which, to go which to we've the seen residents them of the supersede city. that but that like with the the building of the Little Caesars Arena. We've seen the uh, we've seen corporations say, "All right, we'll just pay the penalty because it's not enough educated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's not an educated workforce that can cover it." Uh, they just tore down the house mm-hmm, across mm-hmm, the street mm-hmm. from my house, like on my block, and it wasn't no. a black face <laughs> involved in that whole process. And that's true. And and I worked for, like I said, I have a background in real estate development. So um, I worked for uh, Heritage, which was the Diggs Groups, Diggs Group, which was over um, that development and over payroll and different portions of that project. Um, I myself was going out in the community, which was not a part of my job, but just to make sure that we have contractors uh, minority contractors that know that mm-hmm. there's opportunities there. Um, and they even created opportunities mm-hmm. to partner where the smaller companies could partner with the big companies so that they could get parts of the contract. It it was difficult. It was very difficult. Um, that was not something where they were just, and there are times in construction where, where people are shut out. But there are times when there are not, um, they are literally not being shut out. People, um, I mean, oh, we were I, getting I'm the word out. Oh, I'm not denying, and but okay, look, I, I guess what I'm saying is, but 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 not just with contractors, even the yeah. the permanent jobs, they're supposed to hire thirty percent. There are corporations and they, that and do they'll not generally say. They'll generally um, do, say do the, 30%. the educated workforce is that not is not, is not present or like um, I, I, the point mm-hmm. I was going to make. Um, and I just stopped my crane subscription, but I think I'll get it till then. But, uh, you know, the big list of of employers in the city of Detroit, the number one employer, not our number two employers, quick and loans, but they only employ like maybe twenty three and twenty three hundred people so when you think about a city this large with this many people in this region to be listed as the number two employer Mm -hmm. comparable to what was at one point in time and to wield so much interest in development throughout the region especially in detroit itself Mm -hmm. and detroit proper you know when you look at the per capita does it balance out i i I definitely could could raise arguments on both sides, but twenty three hundred people ain't. It, it's I think I'm this, saying twenty three hundred, but it's not. I think the city of, of Detroit is. I think the city of Detroit itself is that the is number Detroit. one employer. Is that right? So, uh, so yeah. that alone um, is a challenge. I, I, and and then too, I know that they were trying to put together. Um, City Council was trying to do the community benefits agreement that that was a little sketchy too. Um, not having community benefits agreement, but mm-hmm. the different levels um, that they had and the different just, you know, having been a part of the process with different um, mm-hmm. different communities is it, it can be 
a little difficult. No. It's not an easy process, but I definitely believe in um, communi- community benefits agreements. I think it's just the way that you iron everything out. I think that corporations should invest back into the community that they are in, especially well, I, when they're I getting tax evasion. I would say from, shout out to another position that I'm in uh, for right now, so I'm sounding like I'm wielding stuff. I don't know, like I say. But the Hope Village uh, Hope Village initiative over here as the Greenway Project starts is to say uh, it is a vine dock construction that's looking to uh, build its way not far from my house that would put a lot more 18-wheeler traffic over here so we're deciding what's going on but sometimes like you know you you look at the the landmass and the the desolate neighborhood and you say to yourself okay you can probably you know put a shipping i mean put a dockyard around here but it's still a lot of young people it's still me over here i still i I don't want to hear trucks banging around moving yeah you know all all times of the night yeah and it shouldn't be in a residential area it would uh but they're looking moving fast to rezone to an industrial between highland park and detroit Mm -hmm. a yard not far from here um so it's things like that so like uh and and that's when the um community has to get out and go Mm -hmm. down to those zoning meetings um and a lot of times, if you go down in full force, they'll listen. Um, yeah, you guys have to organize and and find out when those meetings are and go down and make sure you're using your voice. And, and you know, you're an activist and use your leadership as well to help mm-hmm. help that process. Yeah. So we definitely got to bring you back and we can talk more uh, processes like this and everything. But I want to close out with classic Detroit is different questions. Um, what was your very first okay. car, and what year make and model, and what year did you get it? Oh my gosh, it was a uh, two uh, hundred K or four hundred K or eight hundred K. I don't even remember what go. a K car, something little silver box car I got from the auction and I think I was about 19 or something took my okay. tax money and went to and the auction where did you go when you first got it where was the first place you go- where did went I to go? after you got your ride okay alright uh, okay. probably to show my and mom or something <laughs> you're you're the DJ at the Detroit fi- the Detroit fireworks just ended Jefferson what were you get to play three songs. What songs you playing? Oh my god. Um, I don't know. I'm old school. Tupac, okay, Biggie, what songs, and though? Prince. Oh gosh. Um, Biggie. probably okay. Juicy from Biggie. Um, Tupac. Almost anything to fuck. Okay. Um, keep your head up. We'll do that one. And then Prince, I'm going to have to bring it down with that one and do Purple okay. Rain and everybody had the lighter. Sign of the times. <laughs> okay. And you can rename World after one Detroiter. Who would it be and why? Um, oh, gosh. There's so many good Detroiters. 
Um, and I'm trying to think of somebody, and I can't think of his name right now, and I'm thinking of two people. Um, right now, the one was the, the black diplomat that I was thinking of because I can't think of his name right nah, now. No, you said that. Do you I'm know thinking who I'm talking Cameron about? He was a U.S. diplomat. No, he was a U.S. diplomat, and I hate I can't okay, think okay. of his Ralph Bunch. He, he, he hasn't had enough recognition. That's okay. That's, That's who I was thinking of, but also, <laughs> also, um, it would be a tie. Um, hmm. Congressman John Conyers, okay. who recently Northwestern Coat, Northwestern Coat, yeah, Kanye. he he did so much, and um, we we could never thank him enough for what he did, and I I don't feel like he got enough love from Detroit. You know, it was particular people, but just overall, he he went to other places. D.C. respected him so much. I just don't feel like even before the issues that happened um, at the latter part, you know, at the end of his career, I just felt like he wasn't getting yeah, the respect. Yeah, I, w- I want to do deserved. a whole. I need to do that. I need to do a whole piece on some of the legacy of John Conyers because I it's. It's very dynamic. It's very deep. It's um, deep. And I don't think a lot of people understand it. Yeah. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. Thank peace. you for the opportunity. Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store.